Well, well, the planet that you and I inhabit, the, the nation and place we call home, it, it all works. We, we all live in it from one source, from God. We, we live in what theologians call the, the unfolding story of redemption. It's a divinity history containing all human stories and histories. And, and along the way, we, we humans have experienced an array of stories, even within, in our own lives, uh, from, from comedy and catastrophe, right, to, to action maybe, uh, if you have kids, and, and drama, right? In, in our technological age, our current story genre, it, it has all the makings of, of a tragic comedy, right? It, it is tragically funny, it is tragically funny that we live in the, the most technologically connected day and age to ever be. And yet we are more relationally, what, disconnected than we have ever been. What, what characterizes America better? Are, are, we, are we caring and connected or, or disconnected and depressed? Here, here's what one French historian, they had some good things to say, uh, from, from the year 1835 observed about his time in America. This is Alexis de Tocqueville from 1835. He says, in America, I've seen the freest and the most enlightened men placed in the happiest condition in the world. It seemed to me that a sort of cloud habitually covered their features. They appeared to me grave and almost sad in the midst of their pleasures. In, in all its vast, unprecedented progress, our, our nation spends millions of hours, billions of dollars to try to reduce what? Sadness, disconnection, depression. If we flip the tables for a moment though, what, what happens when we consider that depress, depression might, might actually be a more honest response to the turmoil of this world? If the, if the deadly impact of Adam's fall in the garden is as bad as the Bible describes it, and, and it is, then doesn't despair make sense? Philosopher Walker Percy once asked this question. He said, whether, whether the self, us, our soul, whether the self is depressed because there's something wrong with it, or whether depression is a normal response to a deranged world. So, so what, what happens if the non-depressed are all the abnormal ones, right? I, <laughs> I, I, I get a call from my doctor Hey, Daniel, uh, how, how are you? I'm like, oh, I, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm healthy. He's like, yeah, uh, that, you need to come see me first thing in the morning. This is, this is worse than I suspected. You know, I, but but why, do, why do we frame depression as, as not good when we've all grown up in this same corrupt, fallen mess? What, what if those despairing in our midst, may, maybe they're on to something? In reference to the, the, the despair found in Psalm 42, British scholar Peter Craigie, he compares it with a similar ancient manuscript. It's out of uh, ancient Egypt, um, a little, little bit older than, than Psalm 42. In the religion of ancient Egypt, there's a remarkable text which has survived from the second millennium BC, giving a deeper insight into the human psyche. It is commonly entitled, A Dispute Over Suicide. A man engages in a dialogue with his own soul, like Psalm 42. 
He suggests to his soul that the miseries of life are such that suicide seems attractive, but his soul has an equally gloomy view of death and sees no solution in suicide. The text, as it has survived, contains no solution to the problem of the dialogue, but its very existence is a testimony to an experience which was common not only in the biblical world, but also in our modern world, the the experience of despair. As in ancient Egypt, so in Psalm 42, the literary form of dialogue between a person and his soul is a literary form rooted in a human reality. The, The psychological tendency toward introversion that is created by external pressures. Despair destroys the positive, outgoing view of life and turns a person in upon himself. Well, as, as we just read, Psalm 42 is a mascal of the sons of Korah. And First Chronicles explains to us that in Israel, the sons of Korah were put in charge of the music at the, at the tabernacle. And then later on, they were still the same ones. During King Solomon's reign, they were put in charge of music at the temple. The author of this psalm was a worship leader in, in despair. He, he's not depressed because he's, he's guilty of some sin like the Psalms describe, right? We have Psalm 51 uh, and, and others for that. He's not, he's not depressed because he's guilty of sin. He's depressed because he's living in a deranged, sin-sick world. So, so imagine with me that this psalmist is, is a friend of ours. Uh, we've just read his final draft, right? Psalm 42. Naturally, you, you'd have questions. Naturally, you'd, you'd want to know what happened, You'd want to know if he's okay. You'd want to see what's, what's next. How do, how do you move on? So as we walk through this passage, I, I want us to just momentarily befriend the son of Korah, who, who we will just refer to as, as Korah, our friend, and ask him three questions. Three questions. What happened? We want to know what, what happened. How did you get to be this way? What, what's wrong? And then, well, what, what happens next? What happens next? So first of all, Korah is away from the house of God and his enemies are oppressing him. He's away from the house of God. Look in verse two. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Verse six hints to us that our music leader probably wasn't in Israel. It's more than likely the case this psalmist was enduring exile. In verse four, the writer tells us how he used to lead God's people in corporate worship and no no more. The house of God, the temple, it was a physical reminder to the people of Israel that that they had access to God's presence. And it assured them that God was with them, that he truly provided for them. So regardless of our music minister's precise location, uh, Korah is just not, he's not where he wants to be. He is not at the house of God. One commentator explains this further. He says, for someone to be cut off from this experience of communal worship, as our psalmist is, is to be cut off from the sustaining ground of faith and hope and to be left to one's own poor devices to survive. Many don't. Now, now it's a a really good thing. It's a gift that us as New Testament believers don't actually know, like this this temple talk, being away from the presence of God, like we don't actually know what that's like, right? Because Jesus has set everything up for us wonderfully. Uh, we, We have access to God the Father at all times in all places. So, so picture it this way. Picture it this way. You're, you're a missionary in a foreign land. You walk home from Sunday service and you see a note on the door. 
says this, Dear resident, you've been reported as a follower of Jesus. You have to the end of today to delete all of your religious apps and remove all the Bibles from your home. You will not return to your place of worship. Disobeying this lawful order will mandate a prison sentence and require undue hardship on your family. Please comply. After, after the anger settles and the, and the jail door closes, despair, despair sets in. Despair sets in. So like the agony you would experience in being taken away from your family, from your family of faith, our friend is in despair while he's away from the house of God. Second, his enemies are oppressing him. The, the former worship leader has enemies who are mocking him. Look in verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where's your God? In verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? The the NIV actually renders this phrase uh, of deadly wound in my bones, renders it, my bones suffer mortal agony. And, And this phrase literally rendered It sounds a little strange, but it gets the point across. In murder, in my bones. Korah's enemies used words to tear at his spiritual life and hope to the point that that his physical well-being suffered. So so at this point, I, I think we would all agree that it would be odd if our friend here wasn't depressed. When exiled, despair is a natural response. Likewise, despair comes naturally to those facing what what can often feel like a a spiritual exile in in the minds. Spiritual exile can can be that that voice crying out in the mind of a suffering Christian. I I read my Bible every day. I pray, I give my time, my energy, my resources to the church. Why is this still happening? During times of of spiritual drought, it's, it's that... It's that insidious voice in the mind of a disparaging Christian. Where's your God? You've tried, but you keep failing. Where where is God now? I I I thought that he had my best interest in mind. Where is he now? One theologian elaborates on this. He says this, At such a moment of trial, we are forced into one of two positions either cynicism and coldness of heart or true depth with God. Spouse betrays. A habitual sin left unchecked blows up in our face. We are publicly shamed in some way that will haunt us for as long as we live. A malignant, inoperable tumor. Feels like a deadly wound in the bones. So, so next, what's, what's wrong? We, we know it's happened to the psalmist, but what's wrong? That's a different, that's a different question, right? That, that's true of all of us. Something can happen to us and we all react to it differently. So what is wrong? The, the backdrop to his enemies' razor-sharp words, it's just his own, it's his own helplessness. Notice that before Korah's enemies say anything in verse 3, he's, he's what? He's already downcast. So, so what's wrong? Well, four, four main things. He, he's thirsty. He's not eating right or sleeping well. He's nostalgic, and he feels like God is against him. So first of all, what's wrong? He's thirsty. Look in verse 1 and 2. 
As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Modern illustrations describe Psalm 42.1 in a tranquil setting with a deer calmly lapping up water. Uh, pictured here is, is Kevin Bell's Psalm 42.1 it's from 2018. And then we have Roger Wagner's Psalm 42 from 1994. This is the common depiction, maybe even what we think of when we're reading Psalm 42. Martin Nystrom's 1984 hymn, As the Deer Panteth for the Water, it's even set to it just a serene, peacefully flowing melody. But, but consider what's happening in this psalm. At, at the very least, a deer doesn't pant for water when it's staring it in the face. It's lapping it up, right? No, a deer pants when water is scarce, when it is tired or on the run. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you've ever heard or, or seen a, a deer panting before. I didn't, and so I went to the, you know, the, the resources of all resources, the academic sourced YouTube, right? And like, what does a deer panting sound like, you know? And, and, uh, and it sounds a lot like a dog, right? It's, it's a striking similarity, a uh, striking similarity to, to a dog panting. That's just, that's what it sounds like, right? You, you have Psalm 42, it's starting off as this, a very poetic Psalm, but if you were to like hear it while it was being read, it's like, no, it doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good, right? If I, if I take a, uh, my, my dog on a run afterward, he, he almost sounds like sometimes he's just so thirsty. He sounds like he's on the verge of death, which, which has no bearing on me being a good runner. Like I think my, my daughter could take him around the block and he, it's like the same kind of panting, right? He, he sounds almost desperate. His rapid breathing, is, it's a sign of vulnerability, Derek Kidner says this. He says, The psalmist seems to have had in mind the slow agony of drought, a condition grimly depicted in the prophet Jeremiah's withered landscape and dazed, dying creatures. So when we read Psalm 42, 1, in our mind's eye, we should see a, a, a dog-tired deer, just, just worn out, worn out with no water in sight. Our, our friend's spiritual vantage point would, would look more like, like this, mud cracks and mirages with, with no end, that the flowing stream has run dry. The psalmist gets hit hard by, by the bleakness of exile. It's that, it's that inset, calcifying sense that, that life will never be the way that it was before, and, and a sudden, just onset terror that he is utterly alone and isolated. He's dying of thirst. He's desperate. He needs some living water. He, he is pleading for some God water, or, or he is going to die. This once great minister of music in the house of God, he's not like, he's not like a deer getting its fill. He, he's, he's one dying of thirst. And, and we would be miserable counselors to Korah, our psalmist, if, if we came up to him and said, Hey friend, you know, it's, it's great to hear that you're thirsty for God. That's so great. That's, what, that's my prayer. I pray that I am thirsty for God too. You know, all, all the while he's there dying of thirst, right? He is thirsty and he doesn't want to be thirsty. Derek Kidner says this, this stricken deer is no camel who is desert dwelling and self-sufficient. He has chosen the blessedness of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, not the deceptive ease of you that are full now. Can you picture what our friend in, in his parched voice is saying to us? 
in these words. Korah could, he could reach out in exile and take his fill of the local gods. He could settle down for a little while, maybe make a name or a living for himself. But instead, he stays thirsty. Do downcast days lead you to, to sugar-coated quick fixes, which, which you know, we all know, don't satisfy. Christian, even, even in your dying thirst, don't, don't yield to, to that power of just endless social media scrolling. Don't get sucked into that. Instead, yield yourself to the power of, of an infinite God who has given us these, these ancient words and scrolls. Don't give up. Be, be diehard in your dehydration. Second, he's not eating right or sleeping well. Look at verse three. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So our friend here is constantly crying or he's on the verge of crying. He's not, or he, he's being poetic here, but he's not being dramatic. He's not eating or sleeping well. Uh, dark days have taken, taken their toll on Korah's physical body. If his diet is tears because he's just so overcome with sadness, he's, he's not really eating much. He's not very hungry. He's also eating tears at night. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. What is he, what is he telling us? Well, well simply that he's, he's not sleeping well, if, if at all. What's wrong is he's down. He's experiencing depression, and it's disrupting his eating and sleeping habits. Third, he's nostalgic. Look in verse four. He's nostalgic. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng, his fellow worshipers, and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He remembers days gone by when life had feeling and meaning and hope and joy. Sometimes remembering what once was and is now, it, it inevitably adds to one's misery instead of, instead of giving you hope, like fuel. It's like fuel to the, just the smoldering fire of dejection. Days gone by are further reminders of how bad it is now and how it's not getting better. The psalmist's nostalgia, it compounds his despair. Fourth, he feels like God is against him. Verse seven says this, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. It's, it's not just that he feels like God has forgotten him. He, he explicitly asks that question, God, why have you forgotten me? He feels like God is against him. The psalmist desires a a full draft from a fresh wellspring. And, and instead, what happens? He, he gets socked in the mouth with salt water. His body gets racked by the most powerful point of a wave, its breaker. The, the roar of the waters of God are in stark contrast to the flowing streams of water that Korah thirsts for. Deep calls the deep, this, this phrase, it refers to the overwhelming nature of what it's like to experience God's power over you and against you. 
There's an echo of of Genesis creation language here. In in the beginning, God creates a a formless and void earth, where what does it say? Darkness was over the face, the surface of the deep. Deep calls the deep. It's as if Korah is saying, "I, I have reverted to the void. I am undone. I am unmade. The endless waves of the ocean and its, and its depth have claimed many lives. But then on top of that, we have this imagery of this waterfall crashing down on the psalmist. The psalmist is boxed in. He's, he's boxed in from above and from below. He, he doesn't feel like he can get out. In the Bible, it's interesting. Water can be used in a number of ways. Most, most notably, it's, it's used to remind us of either life or of death, right? The, the psalmist here wants living streams of water. Jesus metaphorically spoke of living water. You drink it and you're never thirsty again. The Bible also pictures water as death. And, and not just death, but, but what? God's wrath. Think of the, the great flood which wiped out the entire earth. Later Psalm, Psalm 88, 7 says this, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Also, water can be, can be simultaneously an instrument of life and death, right? Think of the Red Sea. The waters part, the Israelites are saved, the waters enfold back on the Egyptians. They are crushed by the wrath of the waters of God. So consider the, the plight of the despairing. For, for those of us in here that have, you've never really dis- despaired or, or had major depression, um, consider the plight of the despairing, those with us who are tossed back and forth and what, what feels like life's treacherous waves. Just as, just as they gasp for, for hope above water, right? They're just plunged right back down. And, and the very structures of Psalm 42 and then, and then into Psalm 43, they help us visualize the, the mental anguish of our friends. We, we have lament to hope, to return to lament and then back to hope. The, the, the battering of the soul from Godward hope to burdened lament can, can be clearly seen in this psalm. A, a despairing soul, as one commentator describes, is like the psalmist who would long for the waters of refreshment, but somehow, in the effort to remember God, he had unleashed the primeval waters of chaos. And where, where there was once order in the mind, now... Now chaos has taken its grip. Pictured here is uh, Graham Braddock's despair. Why are, why are you downcast? I think it's a little more honest a representation than, than a deer lapping up refreshing streams of water. Has the psalmist's cry ever been, has it ever been your own? God, don't, don't you know what this is like? It, it feels like you're against me. You say you're for me, you it feels like you're against me. Your, your wrath, I, it's going to undo me. How, how much longer? The psalmist feels like God is forgetting him, and he feels like God is against him. He's, he's depressed deeply. Third, what, what happens now? What happens now? How does the psalmist deal with all of these things? He's been verbally accosted by his enemies. He feels crushed by the weight of, of God's wrath, he's constantly mourning. So how does, he, how does he cope just in these cold waters of isolation? 
Well, we see the psalmist seek to fight depression in four ways. He's honest. He meditates on God's love by singing and praying the Bible. He talks back to himself, and he longs for salvation. So first of all, he's honest. Look in verse 9. He says, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Korah doesn't name God here as, as my enemy or my great neglecter. No, he's honest. He calls God his rock because God is a rock for those who fear him. And yet at the same time, he feels abandoned. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Are, are you honest with God while still embracing him for who he is? Does your questioning of God lead you to sin? Or does your questioning of God lead you to cry out to him for help? Uh, it, it's one thing to ask God questions, and it's an entire thing differently to question God's character. The psalmist is honest. He questions God's actions, but never our Lord's intent. Second, he meditates on God's love by singing and praying the Bible. Look in verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. How, how would we know, how would our friend know that God commands love? It's a very specific statement. He commands his steadfast love. Tremper Longman remarks, he says, God directs his love towards the psalmist using, using a word, hesed, that indicates God's covenant loyalty. This is, this is not an arbitrary, random, run-of-the-mill God from the ancient world. This, this is Yahweh who has revealed himself in a distinct way, giving covenant loyalty to the undeserving. Korah would only know this specific word of, for love by, by doing what? By studying God's word. He, he reads his Torah, Exodus in the morning, Numbers at, at night, right? He's trying to fall asleep. So he's like, I'm going to read some numbers. Like, still not falling asleep. What does it say? The Lord, the Lord, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, in covenant loyalty. Korah is depressed, but, but he does not deny that God loves him. Even as he's not eating well or, or sleeping well, he meditates on God's love at daybreak and he is singing hymns into the night. He confesses in verse 7 that he feels like God's wrath is against him, but then in tears he meditates on God's love through singing and praying scripture. He, he remembers that he is the one that is internally conflicted, not God. There is no internal confliction in the Lord. So, so say you're here and you, you, you've turned in on yourself won't you also turn toward the love of God? E even now, faith family, fellow believers, in, in all God's limitless power, in his sovereign authority, do you believe that God loves you? Third, he talks back to himself, or, or he preaches to himself. That, and he says the same thing over and over. Verse 5, he says, put your hope in God. Verse 11, hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This, this psalm really extends into Psalm 43, 
where he asks the same questions and responds the same way. He says this in Psalm 43, hope in God, he is my salvation and he is my God. And, and this is key. How, how often do you talk back to yourself with God's word? How often do you instead passively accept just poor, sinful thoughts? What, what would it look like if you, if you approached yourself, you, you grabbed hold of your soul and spoke back to it, told it to hope in God? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, said of this, instead of this psalm, uh, this is so, so helpful. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you were listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Now, this man's treatment was this. He starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? His soul had been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And, and notice, notice something else here, right? This is a public psalm. This is, not, uh, uh, this is not just a memoir of the sons of Korah, but a, but a mascal. It's, it's like a, an ancient tune or, or a type of song for the Jewish nation. So Korah, in preaching the truth to himself, what is he also doing? He's preaching the truth to others. One commentator highlights Psalm 42's emphasis on our corporate gatherings each Sunday says this, one of the roles of the worshiping congregation is to worship and celebrate the resurrection of Christ when I am mourning the death of a loved one or struggling with my own sin. The congregation is to declare the wonderful works of God even when I can no longer see him or sense his presence. Sundays matter. And, and, and brothers and sisters, uh, we, we are not called by God to carry every wounded saint's despair for them. We, we can't. But, but in order to fulfill Christ's law, we are called to lift them up to the one who can. And we can do that together every Sunday, every time we meet. Fourth, he longs for salvation. Look in verse 11. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He, he knows this isn't the end. He believes beyond his own senses and trusts that one day God will rescue all those who look to him. How do you, how do you and I persevere when we're just swallowed up in grief? We, we look beyond our own physical senses to the man of sorrows. We look to the one most acquainted with grief. Jesus knows how our friend the music minister felt. Right before he's abandoned, he implores his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here with me. Then his, one of his disciples betrays him, the rest turn and, and run. So, so Christian, Jesus knows your, your pain and he'll never, he'll never turn and run. Here's how. This is our application. <clears throat> First, the psalmist, the psalmist looked forward to salvation. Jesus forwarded salvation to us. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians says, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of, 
of the Apostle Paul's day and age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The, the psalmist could only look forward in hope to the hope that we now have. The, the Holy Spirit revealed the formerly unseen, unheard, unimaginable grace. He revealed, namely, that Jesus came to die for sinners and make them into saints for those who believe through faith in his life, death, and resurrection. What, what we've been given was hidden from the psalmist. We, we've been given Christ. Next. The psalmist feels separated from God's presence. Jesus was separated from God's presence in order to bring us to God. Uh, of Psalm 42, Dane Ortland writes this. He says, The tidal wave of true separation from the Father washed over another so that it need never wash over us. Next. The psalmist, the psalmist is taunted and mocked. For us, the Christ, our Messiah, is taunted, mocked, tortured, killed. The psalmist is oppressed by his enemies cutting words. Jesus is oppressed by his enemies cutting wounds. The psalmist is taunted and mocked as Jesus goes far, far beyond this for his people. So are you downcast? Can you, can you speak this as, as somebody following Jesus? My soul, speak to your soul, right? My soul, as you walk through deranged days, walk by faith, not sight. Jesus carried my griefs to the cross, and by his wounds, I am healed. Fourth, the psalmist feels crushed by God's wrath. Jesus is crushed by the waves and breakers that were once heading our way. The, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ for the punishment for our sins. Before the crucifixion, the disciples sat by, by still waters, amazed at Jesus' just unreal power. What sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And after the crucifixion, we, we as Christ followers can say this, what sort of man is this who could have stopped wrathful waves but did not? So non-Christian non friends that, that are here, thank you for being here. It's wonderful having you here. But take a moment and, and just stop and think about the situation that you're in. The, the waves are, are up to your waist or beyond. You do not want to test these waters. You will not make it. Run, run out and run away from, from this rebellious madness that you are in and turn to the only one that can take and did take these breakers and billows head on for you. Finally, the psalmist preached truth to himself. When your words fail, Jesus preaches to you. Saints, when, you, when, you're, when you're so down, when you're so spiritually spent, it's hard to come up with anything to, to say at all. So remind, remind yourself, remind your soul that Jesus preaches the gospel to you each and every day. Been, we've been going through a, a, a series in Ecclesiastes, right? Vanity, vanity, right? 
Our great high priest did not spill his blood in vain. He speaks over us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.